0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the club
1: that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. pod, nord pod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back, and welcome all new subscribers to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, I welcome Dr. Ed Nealon, Nord's very own chief medical and scientific officer. In this role, Ed oversees medical and research initiatives, including Prepare Yourself, The Rare Disease Cures Accelerator Data and Analytics Platform, RDCA-DAP, a program that Nord established in partnership with the FDA and the Critical Path Institute, also known as CPATH. Ed carries a really unique perspective as a physician and a researcher, and this episode is going to focus on the value of data sharing from a clinician's perspective because he talked about this very thing at the 2021 RDCA-DAP annual workshop. Patient participation in RDCA DAP programs is a pay it forward opportunity to advance critical research. And you're going to learn how you, yes, you the listener, can choose to take an active role in this really important form of advocacy. Enjoy the show. Ed Nealon, thanks for coming on NordPod. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matthew. So my first question of anyone with MD PhD is how often have you been on the plane when someone said is there a doctor in the house? And you've been an actual doctor?
2: A couple of times. For real? Um yeah, for real. But each time more than one person raised their hand, so I was never really thrust into the spotlight.
1: Oh man. So you, you lost you lost out to competition. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, is is science and nerdiness and geekiness and an interest in this type of practice, genetic? Are you born to want to be a, a nerd and
2: enjoy genetics and all these acronyms and syllables? I think I would have uh, gotten to this at some point in our discussion anyway. I was really drawn to science before medicine, so I have to say yes to your you know, nerd in line of inquiry. I um, found genetics really fascinating, as it is both the substrate on which natural selection acts... And it's basically the recorded instructions of how you make a person. So I found that scientifically very interesting. And at one point, I was going to pursue just a PhD. And then I had some experiences volunteering in a hospital that really convinced me that I enjoyed working with patients directly as well. So that set me on the path of pursuing both uh, MD and PhD, which I did at uh, Stanford.
1: So you said the word substrate and my like AP bio, or AP chem genes kicked in. Can you remind me what the definition of that word is?
2: The substrate is sort of the beginning material before an enzyme acts on it. So it's sort of what you start with. So did you have a personal connection to rare disease upon entering? Because
1: we always say it's not a requisite, but, you know, it's an odd sort of benefit.
2: No, I didn't really, uh, but... Before I really specialized in rare diseases by completing a second residency in medical genetics I completed a residency in general pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and there where I think it is estimated something like 40% of hospitalizations are related to to rare or genetic diseases I you know met a whole slew of families affected by rare and often genetic diseases and kids affected by them. I, as I said, was originally drawn into the field of, of genetics for scientific reasons, but after completing the pediatric residency program, I really got used to, in some cases, fixing things. In general pediatrics, which is sometimes called the happy specialty, most things are fixable and most patients have just one problem. In, in rare diseases and rare genetic diseases, oftentimes none of that's true. Oftentimes the diseases affect multiple organs or have a profound effect on the body. And oftentimes there's, there's no good treatment. So early on in the, the genetics residency that I did, I was initially focusing on birth defects, which were related to some basic science research that I had done, but are almost never amenable to a medical treatment, in some cases amenable to a surgical uh, treatment. And I realized at that point that after three years of practicing medicine as a physician, and very often in general pediatrics, being able to do something to cure or improve the the patient's condition that I was really missing that, becoming an expert on, on, on birth defects. And I shifted my focus within the broad range of genetics to metabolic disorders at that time because inborn errors of metabolism or metabolic disorders are potentially easier to fix. And while there are still very few... Highly effective and disease specific treatments for rare genetic diseases. Many of those that do exist are for metabolic disorders. So while I continued to see patients for about 15 years uh, on a daily basis with whatever known or suspected genetic question was at hand, I gravitated towards the metabolic disorders uh, where you could see a path to treatment. And I participated in more than a dozen. A rare disease uh, clinical trials and did so as an academic. And I also did so after I moved to Sanofi Genzyme and worked there for five years. Going back and counting it up so far, the things I worked on have resulted in six new rare disease drug approvals. And so I'm Able to contribute to coming up with some more treatments in some cases where there there was none, and um, that to me is more satisfying. It's it's not quite back to general pediatrics, but it's a little more satisfying.
1: Well, Ed, let me ask you this. I mean, it seems inevitable that chief medical officer and chief scientific officer of Nord were were your destiny. I was diagnosed with cancer in the 1990s when there was kind of nothing. And it's been incredibly elegant to see how data and science and genomics have all paved the way for these all like now there's almost too much good stuff. How do you interpret the way that the patient community is responding to things that are highly intellectually misunderstood just for the sake of people like you need to be really smart? But most people are not this level academic. Where is the babble fish in all of this to help patients and families understand that this is the new medicine for the future?
2: You know, it's difficult to find the right words to describe some of these concepts. I I was told in medical school that the average medical student learns 40,000 new words. So that's, you know, 40,000 words you can't expect most people to know. Um, and it's almost like a, a wall of obscurities built into that system. But um, I've been seeing patients now for more than twenty years, and when I sit down with a patient, I try to get a sense of the the right terms to use, and that can differ, you know, based on whether someone's a native speaker of English or not, whether you're going through a translator or not, level of education, and so forth. But you you look for ways to explain things that fit the situation. So in terms of you know what I think the rare disease community needs to know about rare disease treatments right now is in line with what you're saying. The technology is accelerating. One thing I would point to is that the way that drugs were traditionally found was to randomly try thousands or even millions of chemicals and see if one of them did what you'd hope it would do, but for Therapies that target a specific gene and either intend to repair that gene, replace that gene, increase its level of expression, or in some cases, decrease its level of expression or its level of activity, we no longer have to just randomly search for a drug that might do that. For gene-targeted therapies, for the most part, geneticists can look at the sort of four-letter genetic code that spells out what the gene is supposed to do and oftentimes design a gene-based therapy that'll target that. So that's a whole new era. And um, we hope now that it'll be possible to treat a lot more of these diseases. I think the problem is that even though the technology is advancing very quickly, I think for good reason, we have still fundamentally the same drug approval process, which is that before you approve a drug, that will be paid for, that will go into patients, that will put them at some risk. You look for evidence that it is both safe and effective. So that calls for clinical trials. And in a rare disease space where there are at least 7,000 rare diseases and some estimates that when we learn about all of them, there there may be 10,000 or more rare diseases, there isn't a real practical path with the current regulatory scheme to go from treatments for a few hundred rare diseases to treatments for 10,000 rare diseases if each one of them requires multiple clinical trials. So That's a little bit tricky, but I think the rare disease population should know that genetics and other new technologies are making it potentially easier now to design treatments, especially if we know which gene to target.
1: Well, yeah, this kind of goes back to how, you know, in the 90s, it was one size fits all. Now it's one size fits 10, right? And mm. h- how does that manifest? I-, I did want to focus a little bit, go back for a second. You are both a physician and a researcher. I don't want to let that go sort of um, unexplored. That's a re- you're like a Reese's peanut butter cup. That's not very frequent that you combine both of those practices. Do you get physicians that are like, oh, you're a researcher? And you get researchers that are like, oh, you're a physician,
2: you know, you don't really get surprised, because it's not that rare, But uh, and you, you do see a lot of people who never sought a PhD, but do have an MD degree, who become very, very fluent in, in research, and our researchers also. The federal government's had a program, the Medical Scientist Training Program, for several decades, which has encouraged students to pursue both MD and PhD degrees. They, And that uh, medical scientist training program makes medical school free if you can get into the program. So that's what I did. And um, there were, I think, eight of my classmates at Stanford who were in the medical scientist training program that year. And I would say about a third became pure scientists and never really took care of patients after medical school. About a third never really returned to science once they started seeing patients and they, they practiced medicine full time but informed by their experiences. And about a third are, you know, working to do both. I really enjoy doing both. And so even though at times it would have been easier to focus on one, I've made those choices that would let me have a, a foot in both doors, if you would.
1: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ed.
2: Back with our guest
1: after the break. <sighs>
0: Find Love at First Drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: All right, we're back. And Ed, I really want to focus on the topic of today, which is this RDCA-DAP. Lots of uh, lots of acronyms here at Nord, but let's discuss the value of data sharing. You know, it's nerdy stuff, but it's really important to talk about.
2: Well, we, we can blame the federal government for that acronym. RDCA RDCADAP uh, is a Food and Drug Administration acronym. It stands for the Rare Disease Cures Accelerator Data Analytics Platform. Oh, boy. So what is it? What does it do? How does it work? What does it
1: mean to someone like me?
2: Well, this is one of a set of programs that FDA introduced uh, in the fall of 2019 and they are funding it because they believe it's going to result in more efficient development of treatments for rare diseases. And the Rare Disease Cures Accelerator or RDCA part of that refers to the general program and its purpose of accelerating the development of treatments for rare diseases. The DAP or Data Analytics Platform is more specific, and that really refers to what the the project is about, which is creating a flexible computer database in which data from different rare diseases can be collected, pulled out of silos where it might be sitting, and made accessible to the FDA, but also to drug companies and interested scientists who may give that data a new life if they reanalyze it. So this is something that ordinary people can be a part of? Individuals don't directly by themselves participate, but individuals participate in registries, natural history studies, or clinical trials that produce this data. And individuals give permission to participate in those studies. When those permissions allow the sharing of data to appropriate you know, other parties, then the holder of the data, let's say the professor or the patient group or the drug company that conducted the study can share the data into the RDCA DAP. Whereas I said, it can sort of have a second life. If the study by itself didn't fully answer the question, it may be possible to answer the question by combining that data with other related studies and adding to the power of that analysis Or another way that it can have another life through the RDCA-DAP is if a study is conducted, let's say a natural history study that has taught us something about what are the most significant problems in a rare disease and maybe even demonstrated how you can measure in in a reliable way the progression of the disease over time, but it hasn't actually tested a treatment. The data that's in RDCA DAP could allow someone else to come along later, use that information to design a clinical trial of a treatment that's more likely to succeed because they don't have to guess, let's say, how quickly does this measure change in the disease? They'll already know that.
1: So is it fair to compare this to something like a pay-it-forward metaphor?
2: Uh, there is an element of that. You know, there's an element of that in a lot of human subjects research. It is a part of nearly every human research consent agreement to, you know, to say that you, 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 you may not benefit directly from this study, but the data that's generated may help you or other patients in the future. Uh, and so it fits with the pay it forward model. Uh, I mean, the the one exception to, you know, direct benefit would be uh, research that involves a treatment that you couldn't otherwise get. But there are a lot of useful and important first or intermediate step clinical research that can't promise you any direct benefit. It's about the knowledge that's generated and the good it will do down the line.
1: Understood. That's kind of a potentially conflicting way to sell something to the American consumer who, for whom the word data is kind of a boogeyman. What 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 type of opposition is the wrong word, but what what type of friction have you possibly experienced amongst your cohorts for patients and families who may be like hesitant to learn what this is or contribute to it?
2: Well, if I focus the answer on the RDCA DAP instead of clinical research in general, that, that would make it a little more focused. So I think the main questions we get are, well, I gave my data to X or Y, you know, Professor Jones or I participated in that drug company trial, why should I want to see my data now go into this data analytics platform? And the answer to that is that if the data stays just in the place where it's originally collected, then only the ideas and the research plan of that first group can make use of it. And they may have moved on to something else. There's a lot of value to even having data from failed clinical trials looked at a second time, perhaps by another company that might come along with a potentially better treatment. If they have to design that treatment from scratch without any patient level data to look at things like how quickly uh, does the disease progress or what's the best thing to measure to show the disease is progressing, they're more likely to make poor choices in designing their study and the study is less likely to prove the safety and efficacy of a treatment.
1: Is there a good or bad part of the communications between the doctors and the patients to bring up the registries? Is is it sort of common parlance in ideally most relationships between doctors and patients?
2: I think there's there's room for improvement there. When a patient receives a diagnosis of a rare disease, either the patient or their caregiver, let's say if the child is if the patient is a child and the parent is making decisions, the patient or caregiver will, you know, usually ask, you know, the doctor, well, what can we do about this? Is there a treatment? And For some of these things where there's still ongoing study, there may be a treatment, but it may still be useful to contribute data to to, to rdca DAP. But given that only about 5% of rare diseases have a specific FDA-approved treatment, it's safe to say that in most cases, we're talking about a disease where there is no really highly effective treatment. So when the answer to that question is, well you know, we can do certain things to help you with your symptoms, but unfortunately there isn't really a treatment that changes the course of the disease. It's possible the doctor or the patient kind of loses interest in that. You hope that they go that next step and say, but, you know, there's some ongoing research and maybe you can get involved with that. And a lot of the uh, patient advocacy organizations, including a number of NORD's member organizations, are aware of the value of, of doing research that even if it doesn't involve directly testing a new medicine, might, as I've alluded to, you know, help in the development of a future treatment, will, in a sense, go back to the patients they know of and say, we'd like to offer you a chance to participate in this research. This data could help eventually develop a, a, a treatment down the line. Um, doctors will sometimes do that uh, but I'm not saying it happens in every case. Doctors are not going to know of every possible opportunity to do that. And the conversation with the patient, if it was focused on a treatment, might be a little bit hard to swing around to that.
1: So let's do some dictionary work here, definitions. I'm, I'm like, words like patient owned data, patient informed data. What does that mean to the layperson? I mean, one might presume, like, you know, you're going to sell me luggage on Instagram if I tell you too much about myself.
2: Well, um, I think what's meant by patient-owned data is really that a patient group, a group that can be assumed to have only the best interests of the patients at heart, is the group that has collected the data and owns it and could potentially contribute it into the RDCA adamp The other you know, big categories of data are pharmaceutical company data and academic data and RDCA DAP is actually meant to collect all three of those different kinds of data but at Nord our main intersection with this program is uh, you know through and, and on behalf of our member organizations and so we're oftentimes talking about this patient owned data where a patient advocacy organization many of whose members are affected by the disease typically have decided that there is a need for more research They've done it themselves, so they own the data, and they're potentially in a position to contribute it. All right. So you know, I, I know just enough to be dangerous in the world of
1: data and healthcare data. But you can have all the data you want if it's not useful, it's useless. But what in this particular case makes the RDCADAP data valuable?
2: So one thing is that they are collecting patient-level data, not you know broad summary data. Like fifty percent of patients have. Problem X, uh, but rather a de-identified list, so you can't connect it to an individual patient. But you do know that this first particular patient, you know, developed symptom X and did so at age Y, and then the next patient never did and lived to be age, you know, Z. And that patient-level data lets you model in a more realistic way how a future clinical trial might work. So the first aspect of the rdca Adapt that makes it valuable is the intention to collect anonymized, but real patient level data that has that ability to inform the design of future uh, trials. The second thing I think that can make it valuable is if you collect sort of the right kind of data to solve the big unmet need in rare diseases, which is the lack of specific treatments for most of the disorders. So you want to be collecting data that identifies what are the most problematic symptoms uh, in the disease, what affects the way the patient sort of feels, functions, or survives that really needs to be corrected to improve life. And this is another place where patient-owned data, I think, has an advantage because if it's been collected on the behalf of patients by patient organizations is usually focused on what are the things that are really bothering the patients. And there's some examples you can find where a drug company spent millions of dollars, ran a clinical trial measuring something, and that's not really what the patients care about the most. So that's another advantage of patient-owned data and another advantage of RDCA DAP if they can get that kind of data into it. I think the, the third piece that is really valuable is if you can measure something that can be used as an endpoint in a clinical trial. And this is tricky because here you really need a coming together of someone who knows the disease, and sometimes that's patients and families in the rare disease space, and somebody who knows how clinical trials work so they can identify which of the 10 or 20 different things we can imagine measuring is actually a good and convincing endpoint for a clinical trial. The general design of a clinical trial is to measure one thing. And if you can show at a a level that is statistically convincing that you've improved that one thing, that's how you get your drug approved. So I want to talk just a little bit to the listeners, many of whom
1: belong to patient organizations under the Nord umbrella. They do really incredible work all day, every day. This is passion projects for thousands of people. What role do the patient groups have, the nonprofits, the mom and pops to the large groups, in terms of letting their communities know about the value of contributing or giving of themselves the paid forward metaphor to the RDCA DAP initiatives?
2: Maybe I think the number one thing would be to realize that the data that you or your, you know, uh, uh, friends and colleagues and the, the patient community have generated in academic or industry or even the group's own studies might be stuck in a so-called data silo right now. It might be it was collected by one group for one purpose and that's been looked at presumably, but that data could have another life and serve another purpose if it could be put into the RDCA DAP where other well-qualified researchers could get access to de-identified, so your privacy is not lost, de-identified patient-level data that would let them take the ball to the next step.
1: All right, last question. You spoke at the virtual 2021 RDCA DEP annual workshop. What were your big takeaways from that?
2: Some of the same things we talked about today, that um, the advantages of patient-owned data included that it was less likely to stay stuck in a data silo because it's really not in the patient's uh, best interest. They are going to want to see it reused and that the – although we didn't talk about it much here today, the data analytics platform is designed in such a way that some pretty sophisticated reanalysis can be done, and the reanalysis is generally better if more people contribute more data. Well, we need
1: uber-crazy smart people to do all that work, and you are definitely – One of those individuals, Ed Nealon is the chief medical and scientific officer at Nord. Welcome to the party. Thanks for joining the community. We are thrilled to have you here. And thank you for being a guest on NordPod today.
2: Thank you, Matthew.
0: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Leslie Nordstrom, and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Valerie Mocken and Noah Jones. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by The Salvatones. Learn more about the music of The Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnote.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.